please turn to Isaiah 21 as we continue on in Isaiah. Today, another very enigmatic oracle concerning Arabia today. Uh, When you have that, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 21, we'll begin in verse 13 and go to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 21, verse 13. The oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of Dadanites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men, the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this oracle concerning Arabia. And God, I pray that you would that you would open our eyes to see everything that you have for us here, and that you would uh, grant us, through your word, by your spirit, great zeal, that we might uh, live for you and serve you as we ought, and that we would eagerly await uh, the return of Christ and life with him forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you look at this passage and the previous one, both very enigmatic passages, you have to ask yourself, what is this for? The Bible is written by both human authors and by a divine author, the Holy Spirit, and God has his purposes for everything he has written. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says that the word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for correction, for reproof, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be a may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God's word is designed to equip us and, and to strengthen us. It is to communicate to us. And as we look at this passage, we have a couple of options. One is that this is just another, you know, if we have that mindset that the Holy Spirit gave this to a reason, for a reason, I see basically two options before us. One is that, well, this is just another picture of judgment, just like all the other pictures of judgment. But you would have to ask yourself, why did God give this one in particular in addition to all the others? Why were not the others enough? Or that this is given for some specific reason. This adds something that the others do not have. And I think as we, as you look at what the Bible says about the day to nights and the character it describes of them, This does give us a distinct message. It gives us a message about those who might consider themselves not necessarily enemies of God. You have God and all these previous oracles going against these people who who are enemies of him, enemies of his people, assaulting him. And here you have the Didnites, caravans of traitors who are quite likely to think of themselves as outside the outside the concern of of Yahweh, outside of the ones that he might consider as enemies. They've never uh, attacked the people, not in any biblical record. They've never uh, done something to incur the wrath of God, but uh, there is no neutrality. 
There is no neutrality. You are either a friend of God or you are his enemy. You either serve God or you serve yourself. You serve your own pleasures. And so I believe the reason why we have this oracle in particular, in addition to all the others, is specifically to address those that might consider themselves uh, to be outside uh, this dichotomy of friend of God and enemy of God. I'm just over here doing my own thing. I'm fine with the Lord. Uh, he should be fine with me. You know, this, is, this addresses that crowd. So beginning here, verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia, in the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravan of Dadanites. So in the thickets of Arabia. So you imagine these caravans, Dadanites, uh, they have to lodge in thickets. That means they've been pushed off the beaten path have to camp somewhere difficult. I don't know if you've ever had to camp somewhere difficult. There was one time I was uh, hiking in the woods by myself, and it was middle of the night. I couldn't see anything, and I kept walking and walking, hoping to find some good place to set up camp, and I couldn't find anything, so I just gave up, and I set up camp, and, you know, pretty, pretty rough area. Didn't get much sleep, and then when I woke in the next morning, there was flat ground just, you know, a few yards ahead. <laughs> if I had just gone a little bit farther... So here they are, pushed off, pushed off the, the path. To the thirsty, bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tema. So uh, Tema is uh, 90 miles uh, northeast of, of Dadan. So you can, uh, it's not clear whether or not they're, you know, trying to make their way back home, being pushed away from their home or what, but they are far from home. And the picture is that they have been, uh, that they are fugitives. They are on the run because of, because of the bloodshed that this passage describes. And they require help from others very, very far away from their home. So it's instructing those of Tima to uh, bring water to the Datanites, to meet them with bread. They need bread, they need water, they have nothing. And these are... These are merchants. These are people who typically would have much, but here they have nothing. They need bread and they need water. They have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. And here you have the direct statement that bloodshed has come to them, that uh, some kind of military threat has reached them, and now they are on the run. These military threats are always, in these passages, pictures of God's judgment. They represent his judgment because he is, he works through these enemy nations to uh, send the sword to those that he wishes to judge. And here he's done this even with the Danites. You know, many people don't think much of God's judgment. They spend very little time contemplating their own mortality, their own relationship with the Lord. We are to fear the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it speaks much of the fear of the Lord. Oh, that's one of the things I like from Miguel's testimony earlier. He was talking about a real fear of the Lord. You know, so many people, they think that they can be right with God without ever having that experience of fear. I know in my own life, my process of coming to the Lord came through really fearing judgment. He is a, a great and awesome God. He does not allow sin into his presence. 
And those who think that, uh, that a right relationship with God doesn't involve recognizing his greatness and his, his awesomeness and his justice, and that you can just bypass that experience and go right to, uh, right to peace with him without ever experiencing the war to him, that is not the picture the Bible describes. The Bible describes us being born children of wrath, and in order to become sons of peace, we must recognize that prior to that peace, we are at war with him. I would love to see more people contemplate their own mortality. You know, there's just a lot in the world that distracts people. There's a lot of entertainment. There are things moving 100 miles an hour, and no one ever stops and takes time to contemplate their own mortality. I'm not much of the kind of person to, you know, sit here and talk about how I wish things were like the good old days. First of all, I'm not that old, so <laughs> I don't know what the good old days were. And Ecclesiastes 7.10 that says, uh, do not ask why the former days are better than these, for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I don't think there really were necessarily better days, but, but uh, it is the case that there are many things that distract people from contemplating the justice and judgment of God. And if you were just to spend five minutes, you know, more than the brief five seconds most people would give, you just spend five minutes considering what the Lord has in store for those who are his enemies, it really changes the way that you, you think about him, it changes the way you respect him and fear him as we ought. Now let's consider the day to nights for a minute. The day to nights go through the Bible, you know, look at every time they're mentioned. It's either, uh, well, there's, I guess there's three contexts in which they're mentioned. One is just, you know, in their history that they descended from such and such a person. So it's not really anything uh, especially uh, of, uh, of great spiritual significance invested in those passages into how we should understand the day and nights. And there are other passages that talk about judgment upon Edom, and it describes Dadan as well as other tribes being caught in that judgment upon Edom. And then the remaining passages about Dadan speak of them as being traitors, uh, you know, people who trade, trade with a D, not a T. Uh, it speaks of them as being uh, merchants. In Ezekiel 38, that famous passage about Gog and Magog that goes from Ezekiel 38 to 39, uh, they aren't the enemies of God's people. They're sitting off to the side on the sidelines, right? And uh, Gog is going to attack God's people, and Dadan is sitting on the side hoping that maybe there'll be some extra spoils for me. Uh, later on. I believe that's Ezekiel 38, 14. So the way we're supposed to think of day and night in scripture, I believe, is as people on the sidelines, people who do not see themselves as involved in this war between God and his enemies, and they will, uh, but they will fall under judgment as well. Because as I said, there is no neutrality. There are only friends of God, and there are enemies of God. Many people think that they will be all right, that there is a, you know, that they are on God's side. Maybe they even call themselves Christians because they, they attend a church once in a while, you know, maybe twice a year or something like that. But this is not, this is not the path to being a friend of God. Uh, 
Imagine what it would be like to be a merchant of that time. You go around, you go to different lands, you experience the different ways people worship. Maybe you even take part in it to appease people. I wouldn't be surprised if some of these people considered themselves to have paid sufficient homage to, to Yahweh along with any other god of the nations. But such is not true alliance with God. Such is not real peace with him. He cannot be one among many. He demands, he demands full uh, authority, full obedience from his servants. So people think that they'll be all right. They think that others will be all right. They think that as long as, you know, you're not a bad person, as long as you're, as you're not doing anything too evil, uh, that you'll be all right with God. But the Bible says that all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, everyone sins in small ways. And when you look at it, in scripture, you realize even the small ways are large ways because God is so great. To sin against him is a very great sin. You know, if you sin against, if you insult a, a brother or a sister, you know, that's, that's bad to do. You shouldn't do that. You insult your parents, well, that's worse. You insult some high person, some, some king or a police officer, right? You're, you're going to get in a lot more trouble for that than, than those lower levels. You insult the God of the universe. This is a great great sin, just, just things that people consider small. So those who would consider themselves to be on the sidelines, out, of the, out from those two categories of friend of God or enemy of God, they're deceiving themselves. There's no one who's in those categories. And along with this, there are many people who think that, well, if someone has never heard of God, they must be in the clear. You know, someone who's, who's never heard of, heard of the maker, how can they be required to serve him? But the Bible says in Romans 1, Psalm 19, that God's thumbprints are on all creation. Everyone knows about him. Everyone is obligated to serve him. And there's no one who escapes. But this is, this is very prevalent theology. You talk to many people, this is what they believe, that if you don't hear about God, then you're, you're in the clear. You know, you read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. This is the kind of stuff he taught in there as well. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a good author. I'm not trying to <laughs> dig everything he says, but, you know, be careful. This is, a, this is the wisdom of man to say that, uh, that someone would be at peace with God just because they don't, haven't heard his word, just because they don't know about him. There's no, uh, there's no free pass given. I heard someone once say that if this were true... If someone could go to heaven just by never hearing about him, we should send, instead of sending missionaries, we should send wall-building teams so that these islands never hear about Jesus. Because once they hear about Jesus, then they're held accountable. That's not how it works, of course. We're told to send missionaries because how can they be saved without hearing of the Lord? So how beautiful are the feet of those who share good, the good news? We must send missionaries because people... If they have not heard of the Lord, they're not on the sidelines. They are his enemy because they know that there is a creator. It is written in creation and it is written on their own hearts. What they need is to hear of Jesus. The only way that one can be saved is to hear of this great and glorious Savior. Everyone is aware of God. Everyone owes their obedience to him. But not everyone has heard of Jesus. Uh, he is a merciful Savior, and if, if one learns of his death and resurrection, places their trust in that, they can have peace with God. 
you cannot have peace with God merely by being on the sidelines, for there are no sidelines. There are no sidelines at all. There's something interesting about this passage that goes unnoticed if you're in uh, most English translations, including the ESV. The oracle concerning Arabia. It's a little different because there's actually a preposition here. So usually um, the way this is set up, it says uh, just something like the oracle Arabia, and then you know, you're supposed to interpret how that means. But there's an extra preposition here. It basically means in, usually. So how should this be translated differently? Well, some try to put a different translation in here. Some don't. And I'm not sure really what the best thing to do is. But the reason why this is significant is because if you put this extra uh, preposition in here, it says in, it sounds a lot like in the evening. So uh, this word, uh, Arabia, it's barab. But if you, uh, but in the evening, the phrase in the evening is uh, ba'areb. So given this passage, and we've seen how these oracles in this cha particular chapter are connected in some of the images, right? In the, the first oracle and the second oracle, um, both spoke of watchmen. The first oracle and the second oracle both spoke of evening time. This third oracle is also, uh, by way of inserting this extra preposition, alluding to the evening time. And the evening time, if you remember, in these previous passages, was speaking of judgment. Isaiah had said in uh, verse, uh, verse 4, My heart staggers, horror has appalled me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Twilight on the nations represents judgment. You see, this is a passage of judgment. This is a passage about a desert evening. Those who consider themselves on the twilight think that their day will continue forever, but that is not the case because the day will end. Twilight will come. Evening will come. There is a great judgment coming upon all who do not trust in the Lord. The only way to have any mercy is to put your trust fully in him, not by uh, yeah, coming to church once every couple of years and thinking that somehow, you know, doing some kind of action is going to appease the Lord Almighty. No, you must put your trust fully in his son, not partially in him and partially in some other things that you're doing. The twilight is coming. There is no lasting day. The only lasting day comes after the twilight, and it only comes for those who trust in the Lord. In verse 16, we see here an intermediate fulfillment. This has happened in several of the oracles. Um, well, I'm not going to try to go back and find them for you, but some of these oracles, you see them in your English Bible written in some kind of poetic form, and then afterward there's prose, and a lot of times that prose is an intermediate fulfillment. It says this thing will happen in poetic form, and then, and then it says, but in very short time, this other thing will happen. Here's the, the intermediate fulfillment. Here's the down payment showing that I will do this thing eventually. And so that's what we see here in verse 16. For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. 
So this thing will happen, but just within a year, the glory of Qadar will come to an end. Qadar referring to roughly the same region as Arabia. So that its glory will end. There will be assault there. There will be um, death and bloodshed. There will be few archers to defend. All the, the mighty people of Arabia that consider themselves uh, able to defend, no more. There will be few because God has spoken. God has spoken. Uh, there, is a, there is a certain end. People imagine that they can avoid these things. They cannot. It's like if you have a sign that says, you know, beware of dog, and you think, well, you know, usually dogs are, are okay as long as you, you know, you just don't act in a threatening way around them and you try to pass. But you try to pass a dog that's vicious like that on its own property, it understands it has this territory to defend. It will attack you. You can't just, you can't just say, well, I'll, I'll just act like I'm not his enemy and then I'm not his enemy. No, the only, people who, the only people who would be able to get by are the friends of the dog, the ones the dog knows. And God owns much more than a yard. He owns all of creation. All of creation is his, and he demands that every knee bow down to Jesus Christ the King. And he is not uh, some capricious dog. He is the God of the universe. Uh, and you do not want to be caught uh, with him when that twilight comes, unless you are his friend. And he has made a way for you to be his friend. He has sent uh, Jesus Christ, the incarnation, God, become man so that we may, even us mere humans, we may have friendship with God through Jesus Christ, one who is man like us, who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And if we go to him, if we go to him, we can be friends with God. That's a, that's a, I feel like I use the word profound too much when I preach, but that is a profound thing, to be a friend of God. You cannot, there's no third category. You're either a friend of God or you're an enemy with God. And the only way to be a friend is through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would grant us a, a great zeal, that we would not be apathetic, that those people who hear this message, that they would not think that they can get by in some third category, but they would, they would fully serve you as one who is a friend, finding great salvation in Jesus Christ. And I ask that this would fill us with great joy, so we come to you and we have peace with you in him. In Jesus' name, amen.